0: Father God, thank you for a new year, a new slate. Uh, God, we appreciate what this means culturally and how we can relate it to what you've done for us, how you've wiped our slate clean uh, and given us a chance to be renewed and reconnected with you. God, thank you for that in this season. And I pray that as we open up tonight's word and we understand your story of redemption, and how it's found from beginning to end. God, enlighten us as we open up your word and understand your story from beginning to end. Here in the book of Exodus, as we start with the Passover and go through the actual exiting part of the Exodus as you flee, as the children of Israel flee Egypt. God, thank you for this story that we're studying tonight. Give us new insights. Give us new love for you and open up our hearts, minds, and eyes to who you really are, so we can love you even more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we did cover chapter 12 last week, but I'm going to go more in depth. We're going to try to get through 12, 13, and 14 tonight. I'm going to try to go verse by verse and get it all in, so we'll see if I can manage that. Oh, I'm sorry, not last week, but uh, like three weeks ago. <laughs> um, When we were last meeting, we went through chapters 1 through 12, but I really want to dig in to these three chapters because they're pivotal um, in understanding all of Scripture. So we're going to start right from verse 1 of chapter 12. And at this point, what has gone on is Moses has come back to Egypt with a message. Aaron has been his helper and his mouthpiece, and they have... Gone before Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron, and told Pharaoh to let the people go. And if he doesn't do it, he's going to suffer the consequences. And there have been nine plagues uh, before this final 10th plague. And the ninth plague was darkness. And then now the 10th plague is about to ensue, which is the death of the firstborn. And there is only one way out of this, which is the Passover that gets celebrated still today. And so this is the story. Our starting point of what we're getting into here. So feel free to follow along. It should be easier today because we're going verse by verse. Chapter 12 verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be your first month of the year. So already in the first two verses what you see is the Passover is a new start for the people of Israel. They are taking their cultural calendar which starts in the month of Tishri and still starts in the month of Tishri. Rosh Hashanah is the new year. It's still celebrated the Jewish new year, but they now have a religious calendar and the religious calendar starts with this redemption ceremony, this thing that saved them from the hand of Egypt. And so there's a new beginning and the religious calendar starts with redemption. I hope you see the significance already. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, Every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Interestingly enough, the 10th of the month, in the month of Nisan, which is the first month of the religious calendar, the 7th month of the cultural calendar. In the month of Nisan, on the 10th, is when you would pick out the spotless lamb for the sacrifice for Passover. The 10th of the month also happened to be the day that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on the donkey. Palm Sunday was the 10th of Nisan. So you're going to see how this plays out. Verse 4, And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So a quick thing that I've heard pointed out um, by Pastor Skip Heitzig, verses 3 through 5, they have a progression. It starts with, everyone in their house shall take for himself a lamb. Verse 4, if the house is too small, take the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb. So it represents sort of a spiritual progression of understanding a lamb. A sacrifice needs to be made for the guilt, for the sin of man. A lamb has to happen. Verse four, you start to recognize not just any lamb, but the lamb. There has to be one, one perfect sacrifice that takes care of the sin of the world. And maybe you know that intellectually, but then in verse five, it becomes your lamb. It becomes personalized. It's not just head knowledge. It's something you live out, something you believe, something that becomes personal. And so is the relationship with Jesus often with many of us. We start to see what's wrong with the world We start to see what's wrong with ourselves. We feel guilt, shame for things we've done in our past, for things maybe we're doing now. We recognize there has to be something better than what the world is offering. And then we hear the stories and we see that religions offer something, but there's something different about Jesus because unlike any other world religion, it's not how hard you work to get to God. It's that God came to earth to save us. He did the work. We just have to believe. And you see Jesus as the lamb. And that knowledge moves to personal faith and a personal journey. And he becomes your lamb, fulfilling what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So picking up in verse 6. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house, where they eat it and they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So what you have here on the 14th day of the month at twilight is when the sacrifice is made. And in that evening, after you sacrifice the lamb, you would paint the blood on the post and the lentils of the door, the top and the sides. Well, interestingly enough, Jesus and his disciples were celebrating and eating the Passover dinner that night. And if you remember, from Genesis chapter 1, you learn that the way that the Hebrews view the calendar is that their day starts in the evening. It goes, there was evening and there was morning the first day. So on the 14th of the month, Jesus and his disciples are eating the Passover dinner. That night, Jesus is arrested And he's tried overnight by the Sanhedrin in the morning, still on the 14th. He's tried before Pilate, then before Herod, then back before Pilate, whipped and scourged, and then crucified. And he dies before evening starts. So on twilight of the 14th, Jesus dies and he's buried by the evening. So Jesus is crucified on the 14th on the day of Passover, the Passover lamb. Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. He was selected on the 10th as everybody shouts, Hosanna, as he enters into Jerusalem and he's crushed and killed on the cross on the 14th, just like a Passover lamb should be. So just moving forward. On that day, you shall eat the flesh. On that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of, its, none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God is sending death through Egypt to fall on the firstborn of both men and beast of all the cattle and livestock as well, unless that house is marked with blood. So it doesn't matter if you are a Hebrew, if you don't believe what God says and you don't put your faith in his words and you don't follow through, the plague will come at at you. So there still is a step of faith that is required, the sacrifice of the lamb and to paint the blood on the doorpost. Now the sign for death to pass over you is the blood on the post and lentils. And many have pointed out that if you look at the cross and the crown of thorns, his hands were pierced on the sides and the crown of thorns were put up on his head. Very much symbolic in the posts, the, the lentil and the posts of the door. And so that right there on the 14th day Jesus' blood in the same spot that would have been the posts and the lentils of the door after he was selected on the 10th. The Passover is a very strict uh, foreshadowing of what was to come. It was redemption for the Israelites at that time, and it foreshadowed redemption for everybody. So this day you shall keep, or this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread on the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. A leaven often represents sin, which is, it's, leaven means you put yeast in it and it rises. So, A, yeast causes bread to rise and puff up pride. Yeast also starts the deterioration or the fermenting process in bread, and it decays faster when there's yeast in it because of that. So yeast represents sin, and similar to what it does to us. Sin, we get puffed up with pride, and we start to decay. Sin, the wages of sin is death. We decay because of it. And so they have this feast of unleavened bread. On the first day, there shall be a, day, a holy convocation, and on the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only be prepared by you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger. Or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. So there's a lot of repetition in chapter 12. But the point is, Passover is the first night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And removing yeast, removing sin, represents the, is what is represented by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover starts it. Jesus was crucified on Passover. On the 15th, he was dead and buried in the grave. And the disciples would have had to celebrate, according to the Jewish laws, the festival of unleavened bread. So Jesus fulfilled the, fest, the, the festival of Passover. And during the festival of Passover, do you remember what he said? He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it. And of the wine, he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Drink it. And that's communion. And so imagine what they're thinking on the 15th as they're celebrating The festival of unleavened bread, eating the unleavened bread, which Jesus said was his body, broken for them as he lays in his grave, drinking the wine that would have been a part of the festival, thinking, this is my blood that was poured out for you, grieving the loss of their rabbi and not quite understanding. As we get into Leviticus, we will rehash this because there are seven Jewish feasts and three of them between Good Friday and Easter were fulfilled by Jesus. Because the next feast is the Feast of First Fruits, which happens the first Sabbath after Passover. And the year that Jesus was crucified, that first Sunday would have been the Feast of First Fruits. And Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of us because Jesus was the first of the eternally resurrected. And so Jesus fulfills the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of first fruits all in one weekend on the exact day of the Jewish festivals in the year that he was crucified, that they're meant to be celebrated in the Jewish history. That's why this stuff is important. And so we will rehash this when we get to Leviticus, so try to remember as much of this as you can, because when we get into Leviticus, we're going to talk about all seven of the festivals and how Jesus has fulfilled some and will fulfill the rest. So, where are we? And then, verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families to kill the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin and strike the lintel on the, tor- uh, the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. He's really trying to get them forever to understand as they practice these things, what is going on. It will come to pass when you come to the land, which the Lord will give you just as he promised that you shall keep this service and it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. The 10th plague. I'm actually going to skip, I'm just going to go over this so we can get to chapter 13 because it talks about some of this again. Um, But this is the death of the firstborn. So everything that God is preparing them to do is exactly what happens. The Jews... They fulfill the Passover. They do their duty. The angel of death comes over. All of the firstborn of of Egypt and the livestock die for everyone who doesn't complete the Passover. Um, But there is one thing I really wanted to point out. Well, two. Verse 40 says this. Now, the sojourn of the children of Israel was lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now, Abraham if you remember from our time in Genesis, prophesied that there would be 400 years that people would be enslaved by by another government. And they would come out of that land with great wealth. Well, this is 430 years. It's not exact, right? What's going on here? Well, the interesting thing about this is, though it's not exact, and I think 430 years pretty much gives God good insight into the future, is that there was also 400 years between the final prophet and the birth of Christ. So between Malachi and the birth of Christ, there was 400 years. But Christ started his ministry at age 30. His public ministry, 430 years from from Malachi. So I think it points to something even more significant. Um, And the second thing is in verse 46, It talks about the regulations of Passover again, and it mentions something that it didn't mention before in this final repetition. It says, In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. So it was important that the Passover lamb had none of its bones broken. Now, in Psalm 22, it points to the Messiah's suffering, and one of the verses in Psalm 22 states that you can count all of his bones. Um, the other thing is it's very no, it's notated in the Gospels that Jesus' bones were not broken on the cross because he was already dead, but the Roman soldiers broke the bones of the other two on the cross to help them die quicker of asphyxiation so that they couldn't pull themselves up to breathe. Um, instead, they pierced Jesus in the side and blood and water came out. Uh, we'll talk more about the blood and water when we're in Numbers, but medically, the blood in the water, what we understand now, medical journals have been written about this, that it was absolute proof of Jesus's death. It wasn't a false death. It wasn't something where he was just passed out. It was a death because when someone dies of asphyxiation and they're pierced in the side, you would expect to find both blood and water if they have died. Um, So just to share that with you. But It's important that none of his bones are broken and that it's really detailed in the Gospels how and why, what happened. So, end of chapter 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it's mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day which you went out of Egypt, out into the house of bondage, for by strength the hand of the Lord brought you out of the place. No leavened bread shall be eaten on this day you were going out in the month of Abib. Now, just so you know, Abib means spring. So it's springtime. Um, it did, the months didn't have names. It was talking about the season. The months didn't have names until after the Babylonian activity where, or captivity, where they started to name the months, the first through twelfth month in their calendar, um, and they named them actually Babylonian names. So, we can talk more about that when we get to Daniel, but um, just so you know, it's the month of Nisan that this is happening, but it's in the springtime, which is true. We celebrate Easter in the spring for that reason. Um, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers and give you a land flowing with milk and honey that you shall keep the service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread and The seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord, on leavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, uh, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt, and you you shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now, on a little side note, I I highlighted verse 9 just because it mentions the hand and the forehead um, because it reminded me of how in Revelation the Antichrist will want to create some sort of copyright infringement on God uh, and have a mark that people put on the back of their right hand or their forehead um, as a sign of allegiance to him. This is more of a spiritual mark of memorizing Scripture and understanding having God's law in your heart But I just, I thought that that was interesting considering our previous study of Revelation. Verse 11, and it shall be when the Lord brings you out of the land, uh, out of the land, into the land of Canaan, or into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall let apart the Lord all that open the womb, or shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with the lamb. And if it will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And all of the firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, "What is this?" That you shall say to him, "By strength of the hand of the Lord, brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage." It shall, and it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the beasts. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a sign on your hand, and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Um, So, a couple things: the first, the consecration of the firstborn. Any clean animals, the first male uh, born was to be brought to the temple to be sacrificed and given to God. If it was a donkey. You sacrificed a lamb instead of the donkey because the donkey was unclean, so you sacrificed a lamb for the donkey. So the innocent pays for the unclean. You should understand what that means. And then um, of the sons, this is in Luke chapter 2. You'll see when Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to be consecrated, um, they hand him over, and then they have two turtle doves to be consecrated. sacrificed because they couldn't afford a lamb, and that was set up in law as a way for poorer families. Um, interestingly, no lamb was sacrificed for Jesus. Jesus became the lamb for everybody. But this was a way God having them remember what they went through in Egypt, consecrating all of the firstborn to him because of the plague of the firstborn that set them free in Egypt, Pointing always pointing to the thing, pointing back to Passover, which is heavily representative of Christ. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So he's basically just saying, we're gonna take a route that doesn't make sense. Because in between Egypt and Canaan, or where Israel ultimately is, the Philistines were there and they were waging war and he didn't want to scare a bunch of slaves because they weren't warriors, they were slaves. Um, so they didn't want to be put, he didn't want to put them in a position where they would see war being fought. Um, so he had them go the long way around. Um, this also sets up a trap for the Israelites and for the, Egypt, for the Egyptians so that they can see God at work. And Moses, verse 19, took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Now, in chapter 50 of Genesis, Joseph prophesied that his bones would be taken out of Egypt to Canaan. So he saw nearly 400 years into the future from his death that his bones would be taken into Canaan. He fully believed that God's promise to his father Jacob would be kept, that they would be seen in the land of Canaan. Um, And so Moses does this. He carries the bones to Egypt and he is buried in Shechem. Verse 20. So they took the journey from Succoth and camped in Etham, the edge between the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So as they were traveling, they were given an absolute sign that God was with them and a direction source this pillar of cloud or fire at night was before them and with them. So they could see God's glory as they were heading out and that was their marker. They knew God was with them and they knew where to go. So keep that in mind as we read the next piece. Chapter 14, Mm -hmm. now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea, opposite baal Zephon." you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the children of Israel. They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I'm the Lord. And they did so. So what God is saying is the Israelites started heading the direction you would think to go north, where Israel is. And then God told Moses to turn and take a different direction. So you Previously, you heard that stated as they're going to go through the wilderness in a weird way. Now you're getting the details. They started going in a normal direction, heading north, and then God told them to turn. And they went south when they needed to head north. That doesn't make sense. But it took them away from the war and put them in a place where they had to count on God. And Pharaoh is going to look at them as they're turning from the direction they should go and say, these people are lost. Let's go get him and, and take them back and enslave them again. So that's what's happening. But God has a plan. Now it was told that the king of Egypt, that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with the captains over every one of them. So interestingly, they're following on chariots. Now, I only bring this up specifically because in our first week where we talked about Exodus, we talked about the dating of the Exodus and when it happened. The Hyksos dynasty that I told you about was the dynasty that brought chariots into existence from the older dating of the Exodus. So that fits with the conservative estimate of when the Exodus took place, as a as a tool for war. Just as a side note, so you know. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out in boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them by camping by the seaside, or or by the sea beside Pi Haheroth before Baal Zephon. Now we don't actually know where these places are. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Verse 11, Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? This is the human condition exponentially performed here. These people witnessed God bring 10 separate plagues over Egypt. They saw flies, locusts, frogs, darkness, hail, all kinds of stuff come at the pharaoh of Egypt. Finally, the plague of the firstborn death, and they saw all of the Egyptians grieving their firstborn as they walked out of Egypt and were given plunder from the Egyptians. So they were given wealth by the people that enslaved them as they exited, watching them grieve because of what God did to the firstborn. And then as they're leaving, they have a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, showing that God is with them and reminding them of what he has done. And they come up to a place where they're stuck and they see the Egyptian army behind them and everything God has done for them is forgotten in a single moment because they're scared. It's easy when things don't look good to forget how God has gotten you through the hard times. It's easy to forget everything that God has done for you. And I've done this in prayer, in my own prayer time. I've been angry at God and I have driven in my car yelling at him and I pull over and I break down crying because in my tears and in this time that I finally let out to God how upset I am with what he's doing and the, what the circumstance I'm in is. And then all of a sudden comes flooding all of the stuff he's done for me. I go, oh right, you're in charge. You have a different perspective than me. Maybe I should sit back and trust you that you can get me through this instead of judging you by my perspective, which is down here and temporary and yours is eternal. And so from an unparalleled perspective, the Egyptians, or I'm sorry, the Israelites see the Egyptians And forget all of the miraculous stuff that God has done for them and is currently doing. The pillar of cloud is still there. And they're not looking at it. They're not looking at God in their presence, in their midst. They're only focused on the problem. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. God just saved them from death. And for some reason, they think they're going to die. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses... Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. I love that. So they're crying. They're upset. They don't understand what's going on. Moses hears from God in this circumstance and he says, Tell them to move forward. Stop looking back. Stop looking at the problem. Move forward. Look at me. Look at the direction. Look at the pillar. Look at God. God is telling you where to go. Go that direction. Stop looking at your problems. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go through on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They shall follow. They shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave the light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So, Basically saying God moves from before them to behind them so they can move forward and he is protecting them from the Egyptian army. And on the Egyptian side, all they see is darkness. On the Israelite side, they see the fire at night and they still know that God is there. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind in that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry land with waters uh, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued them and went after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. That is bold. Now, Pharaoh is watching the Israelites after Moses stretches out his hand. The waters separate, and a wall of water on the left and the right, and he's watching the Israelites go through the land. And he decides he's going to go in after them with his chariots. I, that's just... When you see God doing something like that and you're opposed to him, why you would go right into the middle of his trap. But we do it. People do it all the time. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. He troubled the army of the Egyptians and he took off with their chariot wheels. They drove with them with difficulty and the Egyptians said, let us us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen, Moses stretched out over his, stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning happened, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, Then the waters were returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. There's a few things about this. One, I can't get the imagery of the flood out of my head as I see all of the wicked being covered by the waters in the flood. And the same thing happened to the Egyptians as they chased after God's people. To put it clear, Moses was humbled before God. He left his place of authority in Egypt to become a shepherd in the wilderness and then a shepherd of God's people who served God and did what he was told and he walked away from his authority and humbled himself before God. Pharaoh exalted himself before God and saw himself as one. They both ended up in God's story, and that's the human condition. We will all end up in God's story. We'll either be blessed or cursed based on whether we humble ourselves before God and recognize he is God, or if we try to become our own God and stand in opposition to God and we'll get crushed in the end because we are not bigger than the real God. But the other piece of this that leads to this is redemption. It took an act of faith to put the blood on the posts and lentils. It took an act of faith to move forward when the Egyptians were behind them. It took an act of faith to walk through walls of water and assume it wouldn't come and crush you in something you had never seen before. Redemption is found in act of faith, faith in the blood of the Passover lamb. But if you oppose God and you don't find faith in the blood and the blood doesn't cover you, that finds you. The story of the gospel is so clear and it points directly to the dates and the sacrifice that Jesus would create for our faith and salvation. And the story of redemption is right there. And these chapters are so pivotal to understanding the story that God is telling in his word. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you so much for your story. Thank you for the Exodus. Thank you for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and for what all of the elements of that point to. It's so hard to miss when it becomes clear that you've always been planning and you've always wanted us to see when you send your son and he sacrifices himself for mankind's behalf that we would have a faith to believe in, that we would have a person, a God to believe in, who brings us salvation. Help us to understand the story of redemption that is taught from beginning to end and how this story in Exodus points to the ultimate redemption, that we can be freed from the bondage of sin even more so than the Israelites were freed from the bondage of slavery. Help us understand that and make it personal in Jesus' name. Amen.